0: Welcome to Radical AI, a podcast about radical ideas, radical people, and radical stories at the intersection of ethics and artificial intelligence. We are your hosts, Dylan and Jess, and welcome to our third mini-sode. If you haven't listened to a mini-sode before, you can expect to hear a little bit of updates about what Dylan and I have been up to behind the scenes, Uh, some shout-outs to some events and people and organizations, and also just some current events, as well as a longer extended debrief, the last month of episodes that we have released on the podcast. And oh
1: my God, Jess, we have so much to cover in such a short amount of time on this mini-sode. So first and foremost, we want to thank you all so much for continuing to download and listen. Over the short two months that we've been around since launch, we've had over 6,500 unique downloads, and it's just been uh, you know a wild ride. We continue to be incredibly humbled for you all tuning in time and time again with these conversations that we're having with these amazing and visionary leaders in our world right now and in the tech industry and in academia, Um, their voices are are so important. And it's such a privilege for us to be able to share those voices with you. And
0: we also wanted to mention that it wouldn't be right for us to release and record this episode right now in the context of current events that we are living in without recognizing what's going on in the world around us. And we're talking about the murder of George Floyd, the riots and protests protests, and finally facing and acknowledging all of the systemic racism that is surrounding us, not only in the United States, but in the world at large. And um, we are just really grateful to be able to be having these conversations with some of the people who are really um, great leaders in this space. And uh, speaking of great leaders in this space... We actually had the opportunity last night on uh, Friday, June 12th, to attend a virtual Um, Film Festival, where we got to watch the film Coded Bias, which was created by Shalini Kantaya, And uh, this was part of the Human Rights Watch Film Festival, which was followed by a live online Q&A session. And you guys, this was such a cool event. We were so stoked to be a part of it. Um, If you haven't seen the film Coded Bias... Please go and watch it as soon as you can. It's still available on the Human Rights Watch Film Festival website. It's just $9 to rent it. I think it's available for rental for um, at least another few days, if not the next week or so. And it follows the journey of uh, Joy Boulamwini and the fight for algorithmic justice. Uh, There's not much I could say that would do it justice (laughs) because it's just so moving, but I really, really recommend if you are at all interested in this space to go watch it. And even if you're not a researcher or an academic, it is relevant to everyone, believe me. And this panel, um, which was just filled with, like, academic celebrities (laughs) to me, was so amazing. So this featured Joy Wallamwini herself, um, Dr. Sophia Noble, Deb Raji, Lee Rowland, Shalini Deborah Brown, who was uh, moderating it and they were kind of just debriefing the film and then also some of their experiences with disseminating this research in the first place. And um, there's actually a recording from the Human Rights Watch Film Festival of the Q&A session uh, that was created. And I think that it's available for everyone for free. So if you weren't there for the live Q&A session, I really recommend you go and listen and watch that because it was really incredible. Some other really quick shout outs and uh, updates. If you hadn't noticed, we have new branding and we are so excited about this. Dylan wrote a nice blog post on Medium about some of our struggles and our uh, lessons that we learned in the process of creating our new uh, logo. And we want to shout out to uh, Maria Deslis for working so hard and diligently with us for weeks to create that and iterating on the process. And we also want to Shout out to Show McLarence, who uh, created our first logo, which was so helpful for us when we were launching the podcast. And another shout out that we want to do is to Jenny LaJoya, who actually is the person who created our uh, theme music that you hear in the intro and outro of all of our episodes. And we haven't shouted out her name yet uh, because we keep forgetting. So now, thank you so much, Jenny. We are in love with your music, and uh, we hope that our listeners are enjoying it too. And the last update is the YouTube channel that we finally launched, um, or at least it was launched a little while ago, but we finally started putting videos on it. If you're looking for a different medium or platform to listen to some of our episodes or some other um, community updates, we are actually finally being active on our YouTube channel. So you can look us up at the Radical AI podcast on YouTube, and you will see all of our full episodes and some excerpts um, like... Timnit's excerpt from her episode regarding the current events, which we will uh, go into a little bit more in our debrief, which speaking of, it is time now that we have gone over all of the uh, at least immediate updates. It's time to now go into our monthly debrief from the last four and really five episodes of the Radical AI podcast.
1: The interviews that we will be debriefing in this mini are our interview with Karen Howe, who is the AI reporter for the MIT Technology Review, our interview with Abeba Burhani, a Cognitive Science PhD student at University College Dublin, Unso Joe, who is a History PhD candidate at Stanford, our interview with Timnit Gebru, who is the co-lead of the Ethical AI team at Google, and finally our interview with Yeshi Milner, the executive director of Data for Black Lives.
0: And let's kick it off with our first episode, which was Tech Journalism and Ethics, Where is the Truth Anyway? with Karen Howe. So in this episode, I think one of my... Initial takeaways that I actually really like, she explained in the interview that because she understands what it's like to not understand things like machine learning and artificial intelligence, that's why she's so motivated, or at least one of the reasons why she's so motivated to try to create tools and stories and activities and really great resources for other people who also don't come from computer science to be able to um, utilize these resources to understand things like algorithmic bias and AI ethics, which I thought was just really great because I've been in that situation before and I've also been the person in the computer science classroom who doesn't understand what's going on, uh, at least when I was initially learning computer science and honestly all the time, even as I'm still getting my PhD right now. Uh, And so I just I love when people try to take uh, difficult technical concepts and turn them into really great resources that are understandable by anyone, whether they come from a computer science background or not. So that was one of the one of the um, first takeaways that I really enjoyed about Karen's interview. And what about you, Don? What were some of the takeaways for you?
1: You know, I just I had a lot of fun with this interview. Um, I had a, a good time talking about you know uh, marriage and commiserating with Karen about you know friends having kids and and not having kids myself and things like that. So um, I just I had a good time with the interview. Also, I um, as I think I mentioned in the interview I've always been interested in in journalism. Um, so to listen to some of the stories of uh, someone who's really you know blazing some trails right now in uh, in journalism and in AI ethics journalism uh, was just It was just really cool to hear how she sees her job and especially when she started talking about this concept of objectivity and about truth um, and how there isn't necessarily a thing called truth, right, is this idea that she was bringing up about it being consensus information. So this interview was also a way for me to to scratch some of my philosophy uh, itch, because as I'm doing some moral philosophy work, you know, this concept of truth and objectivity that we sometimes, you know, take for granted, um, especially in computer science spaces, that there's something that, you know, actually exists out there um, that is more than just this intersubjective space is uh, it was it was just a good conversation for me and uh, reminded me of some of the things I believe and also some of the things that I... Don't believe.
0: Yeah, that seems to be a recurring theme in our interviews: is this idea of truth and objectivity, and whether or not it's actually something that exists or something that we can capture through data. And that was actually something that we talked quite a bit about with uh, Unso Joe. And I know this is a little bit out of order, but um, Unso's episode was our bonus episode, which is the first time we've done this at all with our podcast. Uh, and that was just such a, a fun process <laughs> where we kind of went through uh, an old interview that you had done before we met, actually, Uh, and we kind of just talked over and paused the interview and gave our running commentary, uh, which was just like a just a fun experience. Uh, But yeah, Unsa's episode, uh, we already talked way too much about it during the episode. So if uh, you'd like to hear much more about our thoughts, uh, we recommend that you go and listen to the history that defines our technological future. Uh, But I'll just say one quick takeaway from that is, uh, for me at least, this idea that data is political. And this is a phrase I feel like I've been repeating over and over again in my head and also out loud to all my colleagues. They're probably sick of it. Ever since we recorded this episode, I just keep saying it over and over again. Data is political. <laughs> yeah. So obviously, uh, this was an interview that I did before
1: uh, we uh, got together to do this podcast Jess. Um and uh, I, I mean, I love the conversation with Unso at the time and listening back on it. Uh, there were just so many things that I wish that I had done or said differently. Um, so it was it was a cool experience to hear my perspective. And then also your um, uh, helpful critique of different things that I could have done, you know, better or differently, um, because I think that just like even in the two months of work that we've done together, we've grown so much as as interviewers and in really centering um their stories. So while I'm still very proud of that interview and I think the work that Unso is doing is amazing especially bringing history and archives into this conversation about justice and uh, algorithms I um I learned a lot and I just, you know, it was the most editing that we ever did in an episode um, in in putting everything together. And it was just a lot of fun. I don't know. I had a a really good time of listening back. It was a really good learning experience for
0: me. So I'm glad that you enjoyed the editing process because as our uh, resident (laughs) editor, (laughs) you're the person who spent the hours editing that episode. So uh, I'm glad (laughs) that it was enjoyable for you. And uh uh, well, yeah, I mean, enjoyable.
1: Yeah, it was, it was fun. The recording was more fun than the editing. <laughs> um, but the uh, the what, one thing I did want to circle back to, and, and this is something that, as you said, is coming up a lot in our conversations with people, is that like it, everyone just seems to be in dialogue with the Enlightenment right now, with like this idea of like objective science, that reason is the thing that has to prevail, um, like these basic concepts that were. "Quote unquote created, or at least like instituted in you know the 17th century um, in Europe at the same time that colonialism was coming up. It's like we keep finding ourselves in because uh, I noted the same thing that you did. We keep talking about objectivity, and I, I'm wondering to myself like what is that about? And it's like well, we really never got over." got got over like we could um, this colonialism or the enlightenment context that uh, it, it came out of. It's still so much a specter in everything we do including in the technology space and in this time when we're grappling with white supremacy um, and trying to dismantle systemic racism it's so important as our, our guests continue to remind us to look at the context and that's not just you know the context right here and right now but it's the context through hundreds of and hundreds of years of uh, of oppression, mostly, and again, of that systematic racism. And this is something that Timnit uh, brought up a lot in in her interview, um, where uh, we actually, we asked her to speak directly to to you all, listeners, about, um, so we'd recorded the episode, and then about a week later, the world had changed considerably. And so we'd asked Timnit to give a... Um, a message uh, to to everyone um, responding to what's going on. And she graciously accepted and uh, her message in part was about how it's not just, it's not just the United States. It's not just here. This is a global context that we are interacting with.
0: Yeah. And I want to circle back actually to, when you were talking about the Enlightenment and uh, colonization. And I think that we can't even use the word colonization without bringing up, obviously, our interview with Abeba Berhane, um, which is titled, Robot Rights, Exploring Algorithmic Colonization. Uh, and that's actually one of her papers, is the algorithmic colonization of Africa, which is basically leading to the fact that um, not data is not the only thing that is political here. Algorithms are political as well. And when we're talking about this idea of objectivity and if there's even such a thing as objective truth when it comes to the world, when we take that idea and we put it into our algorithms, we run into even more problems. And this was actually my biggest takeaway from Abeba's interview, uh, was her her comment on the fact that machine learning algorithms are increasingly trying to predict the inherently unpredictable. And this is when machine learning tries to predict some sort of social outcome. Outcome for a human being. This could be something like recidivism risks, so their likely to likelihood to recommit a crime. This could be their worthiness of credit based off of their trustworthiness when it comes to money. And this is all just to say that human beings are super incredibly complex. I don't think that I could even predict what I'm going to do today in a social context. And I am myself and I know everything there is to know about me, arguably more than anyone else or anything else in the entire world. And I still couldn't predict exactly what I'm going to do, given any context. So how in the world are we supposed to expect an algorithm that is fed nothing but data that's incomplete? How can we expect a machine learning algorithm to predict a social outcome or a social action of a human being when we can't even do it ourselves? One of the
1: quotes from Abeba's interview uh, that has really stuck with me, especially with the riots and the protests of the last few weeks has been, uh, when she said that colonialism is not a bug, it's the feature. Um, and that, although some people argue that we, you know, we're in this post-colonial space that, that we really can't like reasonably argue that when so many of our structures derive directly from a colonial history. Um, and so, you know, I really, like, invite listeners to to let that sink in for a second. Like, what would it mean if colonialism is not the bug, but it's the feature of the systems that we're in? And I think this really does tie into a lot of what um, Timnit was talking about, which was was more structural. And we had a wonderful conversation uh, with Dr. Gabriel about um Really, like, who, who is pulling the strings in all of this? And we talked about, you know, is there a difference between the academy and industry? Um, and Timna essentially said, you know, sort of, in part, there might be, uh, but... Really, it's the same people. It's the same group of people that run both industry and academia. And Jess, you and I spend so much time in like thinking about, you know, what guests we're gonna have on the show and stuff like that. Of saying, okay, well, you know, these people are representing academia and these people are representing industry, and we want a balance, you know, across the board of diversity, including that kind of diversity uh, of different fields. And it kind of took me aback when she said that because she's, I think she's right. (laughs) It's like when I think about even Ivy League institutions and the amount of people who are currently teaching in Ivy League institutions, who are also the people who are like the primary consultants in the tech industry, which is nothing against any of those people. And it's also like there is a particular pattern and there's a particular structure that that creates. And it makes you wonder, you know, does that have something to do with this colonial history? Uh, that we're living out of right now.
0: Yeah, that's a really good point, Dylan. And I think something else that actually stood out to me about Timnit's interview, while we're talking about this idea of a select few people being in the room who are making these big decisions at large tech companies and who are sitting high up on the totem pole in academia, is the topic of representation, which was really uh, pervasive throughout the entire interview with Timnit. And after that conversation with Timnit, I still wondered, I mean, there isn't any quick
1: fix here. Right. It's like it's such a deep structural change that needs to happen. And that's what I see in the protests happening right now is this hopefully the shift towards trying to make lasting structural change in our systems where racism and sexism and, and all sorts of other um I guess, are are just so deeply ingrained in them. And yes, she, I think, got to the heart of this with some of the questions that uh, she was asking, like really asking these holistic questions of, uh, she said, you know, it's, we have to address some of these things specifically, but it's also, um, you know, some spiritual questions as well. And she said, you know, how do we respond with love, which is the same thing that we heard from our interview, uh, with Dr. Ruha Benjamin, this concept of, of love, how do we bring love into it? And yes, she also asked, you know, how do we create community right now? How do we hold space for people? And then, uh, another, uh, question that that she asked is, you know, after all these protests are uh, over, whatever that means, um, you know, what happens when folks are out of jail and what happens when the protest ends? Like, people need community spaces of healing and organizing and justice and restorative justice spaces. So how do we create these spaces even within, you know, our workplaces, even within academia, even within all these different spaces that that we frequent? Um, It's not just this Okay, well, we just we do the diversity hire and representation isn't just this this shallow thing. It's really asking us to um, it's inviting us, I guess, to ask these really deep structural questions of like, how do we restructure these things that we take for granted and these systems that we take for granted in order to build something that can be sustainable for everyone? Because right now, I mean, what's obvious is that these systems out in the world are not sustainable for everyone. And they're not looking out for everyone. They're looking out for a, a select group of people of a certain race, possibly a certain gender. Um, and we've seen that, you know, the evidence is over the past however many hundreds of years. Um, so there's still that question. And there's definitely been some hope this past these past few weeks uh, in these conversations and these protests. And um, I think in the tech industry, there's Uh, a lot of work still to be done.
0: Yeah, and speaking of breaking down systems, this is what Yeshi Milner is all about as the executive director of Data for Black Lives. And one of the things that she mentioned that she's helping to break down is um, this political data that we've been talking about and how data has historically been used for weaponization. And this is in things like predictive policing, risk assessments, facial recognition, uh, fecal credit scores. There's just so many examples of how data has been used for bad And she's trying to change the narrative here and instead use data for social change to help create an equitable world. And I just love the Data for Black Lives um, tagline, I guess, that's on their website, the data as protest, data as accountability and data as collective action. That is just, I think, such a beautiful way to um, phrase how or some of the many ways that we can use data for positive social change. And uh, I also wanted to take this opportunity to give a shout out to some of the amazing organizations that have just been doing great work in this space, especially over the last few weeks, who have um, probably had a lot of the people who are working for them and volunteering for them working countless hours, as I'm sure there have been many requests for interviews and um, for other forms of media to share resources. And so some of these organizations are uh, Data for Black Lives, of course, uh, Black in AI, the Algorithmic Justice League. And also um, another shout out that I wanted to give was actually from the Center for Critical Internet Inquiry, which is directed by Safiya Noble and Sarah Roberts. They came out with a, a reading list that is 15 books on racial justice and technology by Black scholars that the tech industry needs to read right now. And it is linked on their Twitter and on their uh, website. And we'll also put a link to that in the show notes as well.
1: Yeah, and, and I think... To kind of close this this conversation, um, one quote that has, has really stuck with me, um, and it is from um, Joy and also uh, Aina Agarwal and Sasha Constanza-Shock, so from the Algorithmic uh, Justice League, um, they wrote this amazing op-ed on Medium, uh, we'll also link that in our, in our show notes, called IBM Leads, More Should Follow, Racial Justice Requires Algorithmic Justice. Um, and this is about uh, IBM announcing that they're going to uh, oppose and not condone any use of uh, facial recognition technology uh, for mass surveillance or, or racial profiling. And the way that they end this piece is by simply saying, racial justice requires algorithmic justice take a stand backed with action. And so our hope for, for you all who are listening out there is uh, that wherever you're at, that uh, you take a stand backed with action. And that might be reading, that might be marching. There are there are many different ways from where we're each situated. You know, for Jess and I, it's, it's hopefully to do this podcast, right? And to lift up some of these voices. But wherever you're at, um, we do really invite you to please take a stand backed with action and to remember these words from from joy and all that racial justice requires algorithmic justice isn't it isn't this like extra thing right this is this is pivotal um, to the fight for racial justice right now.
0: And we will have uh, many more conversations upcoming about some of the current events regarding Companies like IBM and Amazon and their decision to ban this uh, facial recognition technology, at least for now. Uh, And of course, we could talk about algorithmic justice and political data and political algorithms for hours. But as this is a mini-sode, we are going to try to keep it as short as humanly possible. So with that, uh, this concludes the debrief of this month's episodes. And we just want to briefly mention that we welcome all kinds of feedback on the way that we interview, the way that we structure our uh, episodes and our hosts and our minisodes as well. Uh, So if you want to provide any feedback for us, please don't hesitate to send us an email or reach out on Twitter. And also, if you're looking to help show your support, something that is really beneficial for us is if you actually rate and um, give a review of the podcast on whichever platform you are watching or whichever platform you're listening to the podcast on, especially if it is uh, iTunes, as that helps us Get lifted up by the algorithm, ironically, and as well if you can subscribe and share with your friends. Uh, we just want to get these conversations with these amazing scholars and these amazing leaders out to as many people as we possibly can.
1: Well, and just now people can technically watch the podcast on YouTube, although True. it's not it's not video, <laughs> but like you can definitely hit that play button and uh, the little thing will scroll.
0: So they can, they can watch it. And they can watch the thumbnail. That's right. You can <laughs> yeah, watch the thumbnail. It's,
1: it's, a, it's a great, there are great thumbnails. Um, and we thank also you. just really <laughs> quickly, yeah, Jess makes the thumbnails. Uh, we want to quickly plug our upcoming interviews uh, that we will be releasing, including with Dr. Miriam Sweeney, Dr. Emily Bender, Dr. Anima Anand Kumar, Deb Raji, and of course, uh, others. And uh, please stay tuned. And thank you so much for joining us for this minisode.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, we invite you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. Join our conversation on Twitter at radicalAI Pod. And as always, stay radical.
1: I'm sorry. Stay stay radical.
0: Stay radical. You're feeling radical today.
1: I'm feeling so (laughs) radical today.